right. Well, Happy New Year again. How are you doing this morning? Everybody good? So glad that you're here. Those watching online, thank you for being with us. Um, it's, it is an, another year, a blessing. Just um, so thankful for this church, this church family. Um, hope everyone had a great Christmas. Everybody have a great Christmas with your families, friends. Um, Brittany and I and our kids drove along um, 16 hours or so to Missouri. Um, so thank you for uh, praying for us and our sanity and the road conditions. It, it actually, it, it honestly was like the easiest 16-hour drive you would have ever imagined would, um, did great. But I do want to apologize up front this morning for something. My, my wife accuses me of um, every time we go and spend time with family that I, t- about a couple, uh, two weeks afterwards or so, I, I, I have that Missouri draw a little bit on me. So if I sound a little Missouri this morning, you'll have to, you have to forgive me. Uh, but um, something about hanging out with my grandparents, it just brings it out of me. So um, my side of the family, though, is, just so you know, if you don't know, is from Redneck, Missouri. Okay, that's where we're from. It became shockingly clear that we were back this last week. My, my parents were walking out of a Walmart. My dad was telling me this story. And, um, and my dad, who is also a former pastor, can, and so therefore strike up a conversation with a random stranger, right? Um, um, pastor's kids know. Um, they, they know. Um, and, and talk about the most personal details. We used to always joke my dad would get somebody's social security number just in conversation. Um, but, um, my, so my dad and mom are walking out of Walmart. He turns to the greeter and just out of the blue says, Hey, this, did you know this is my wife and I's 43rd wedding anniversary? And, uh, without skipping a beat, the greeter looks at my mom, then looks back at my dad and says, Wow, she's more beautiful than a new set of snow tires. <laughs> I assume that's a compliment from a redneck. I, my dad, my dad didn't know what to take about that, so he just they just kept walking and went to the car. That was it. But um, anyway, so everybody turn to your spouse and tell them they're more beautiful than new new set of snow tires. Um, so I'm not all sure how to segue a, a joke like that. So let's just jump jump right into it. Um, a pastor in our in our network here in New York shared what I thought was um, what I thought was an, a, a great a great reminder for this time of the year. And he says, he said, "Dear preacher, resist the urge to tell people that just because this is a new year, they're going to be more blessed, more prosperous, and achieve all their dreams. Instead, teach them the word and to walk close to God." Our call is to provoke people to godliness, not hype them with fake promises. So this morning, I promise to not tell you that 2023 is only going to be a year full of great things. It's a promise I can't make. I love it. Amen. It's a promise I can't make. What I can tell you with 100% confidence is that we serve Emmanuel, right? God with us. And he's going to be with us in 2023, whatever happens. Pastor and I um, are so excited about this rooted um, small group experience coming up. We're excited about the the things that we believe it's going to do in in the small group communities that are formed, the new small communities that are formed. And, and Pastor mentioned this, but but how many of you? And don't need to raise your hands, but how many of you think about a time in your life that was just one of those moments? Um, that was crucial and you saw the community come around you or your family at some point, whatever that might be, whatever experience. And maybe it was just one or two people. Maybe it was a close friend, but it was a community of believers that came around, supported, prayed for you, brought you meals, whatever that might be. That is the power 
of, 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 of small group community. And do you know that often if we don't have it, we don't even um, realize sometimes that we've missed it until then we have it and we think, man, what was I missing with, without this, right? Um, church leaders have, have really f- for a while now been screaming about the importance of community. It's almost become a cliche word in, in church, church culture, the community, but um, it's so, so vital for our health um, small groups create, I believe, a, a unique environment that allow for things like vulnerability, accountability, and ultimately our personal growth. Now, um, before you run out the door at the mention of those three words, um, uh, it, it, let me um, talk with you a little bit about another aspect of that. Um, Sunday mornings, hear me, should not be the only avenue of our spiritual growth. Amen? It, now, it does happen here, and it should happen here, but it can't be the only avenue that you and I are pursuing our spiritual growth. And so, this morning, I'm, I'm sharing a message I've titled, Discipleship at Any Cost, and I want to share three main points with you on why this growth aspect, that third aspect that I mentioned of small groups, why that um, part of it is so, so important and a first note for you, if you grab notes on the way in, um, fill this out there. You can also, if you've got your smartphone, take notes on your notes app if you'd like. Number one, discipleship, I believe, is our calling. Discipleship is our calling. I mentioned um, the small group provide you that um, vulnerability, accountability, and growth. Um, and I, I'm, I'm so grateful for um, part... Um, um, uh, points at my life where that has been the most pronounced, where I've had people close to me um, that, that speak into my life, that notice things right in me that, that need to change, that notice things that I can do better in my walk of faith, that notice um, corrections that, that might need to be made, even in my relationship with my wife or my relationship with my kids, um, and being vulnerable in those areas, so, so important. Um, when I open my life and heart, to other people in a small setting who I know, this is important, who I know have God's best for my life, there is something special about that relationship. Now, the last part of that statement matters, who has God's best for me, right? Oftentimes when we're in need, how many know when we're, when we're struggling, we, we want help from someplace. And if we don't get it, we'll go to someplace where it's not actually healthy, right? And we'll get advice that's not godly. It is so, so important, and in those areas, points in my life when I'm struggling, that I have godly people to go to who I know have God's best in my life, who, who might tell me things I don't want to hear, right? And might, um, it's that iron sharpening iron. That's where that analogy really comes to bear, where those sharp edges of our lives get, get, get worn off in, in love, right? They have God's best for me. Paul was often... Um, known, right, for his blunt language um, in, in, in the books that he wrote. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, he writes um, about some divisions that were happening in the church, and he uses this as an opportunity to speak to their calling to discipleship, their calling to spiritual maturity. Listen to how he begins the chapter here, this 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, 
not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. Can you all, any of you picture a friend right now that you have that's just seriously blunt, like right to the point? I, I feel like that's what Paul is doing here. He's not mincing words. He's not trying to puff them up, right, with, with, uh, with encouragement. He's telling them, right, what it is. He spends the rest of the chapter then pointing out things that the believers in Corinth were still struggling with and, and explaining how necessary it was that they move beyond those, those basic patterns and belief systems of the world and into deeper spiritual maturity. And so just as infants must move past milk for their health and wholeness, um, followers of Jesus must grow in our faith and understanding for our spiritual wholeness, for our spiritual wholeness. The book of Hebrews um, continues this analogy. This is um, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and it says there, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Ouch, again, good grief. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That's discernment, right? That's discernment, and and we grow in that um, understanding God's word. Some of you know, um, as a kid, I played the, the trumpet. Um, it was my main instrument. I was um, then played all through college, and music ed was, was actually my, my major. Um, believe it or not, I was kind of a reluctant, reluctant band kid. Um, I inherited a trumpet from my aunt who had, who had passed away. And so I had this free trumpet. It was just sitting around. And, and at sixth grade in our school, you had to choose. Actually, everybody in sixth grade was either in band, choir, or orchestra. We had to choose one of the three. So I thought, oh, I got this free trumpet. I guess I'm doing band, right? That was how, that was really my main impetus to join the band. Um, how many know when you first start on the instrument, you start off learning one note at a time, right? One, one sound, one, um, one noise, if you'll call it, at the beginning. Can I just say that I think there's a special place in heaven for beginning band teachers? I do. Um, the squawking and the squeaking and the screeching that comes out of instruments when they're first starting is, is something of nightmares. I don't know how else to describe it. My wife and I will never forget going to a concert, and I won't say who, but uh, it was, we, we, and we were like the gung-ho parents, like we were going to sit in the front row, right? We got there early, and we're like, we're going to be the best parents, parents of the year. We sat right up in the front, and then they came out with the recorders, and we looked at each other, and we're like, oh, this was a mistake. <laughs> we should have sat more towards the back, but um, there's a special place in heaven for beginning band teachers. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Um, but because you're learning one note at a time at the beginning, the books um, are as basic as they come. They're these skinny little books. Um, this is a beginning um, orchestra book that my daughter, she's playing the violin. Riley's playing the violin. It just, it, it's, if you look at these um, uh, books, they're just repetitive. Same rhythms, same note, just over and over 
and over again for pages for pages they're just and they're trying to come up with songs that off a of one note like how do you do that there there's no songs like that that's there there's there's pictures there's engaging um diagrams and and explanations that is a beginning um a beginning musician's book well i was um i continued on in my trumpet um, ca- career, if you want to call it that. Um, by the eighth grade, I'd begin um, taking private lessons with a professor from the University of Illinois. And um, one of my first lessons with them, they gave me a list then of, of uh, trumpet books that I needed to purchase. And one of these on this list, I noticed was like 50 bucks. And I'm like, what kind of book is this? And and I thought, this better, this thing better be the Bible, you know? Well, sure enough, I go to the music store, and it was like the size of a Bible. This was called the Arben, and the Arben um, um, Complete Conservatory Method for Trumpet. It was about a $50 book, and it was just page after page after page of notes. There's no pictures. There's no catchy diagram. There's nothing in here that would make you want to open this and look at it. Um, I'm, I'm going, I am, and here's what I thought. I'm never going to be able to play out of that thing. Never. I'll never be able to do that. This is worth, this is the worst $50 I've ever spent, right? Of course, by my sophomore, junior year of high school, I'm playing out of this thing like it's nothing. And I had moved past, right? I had moved past the basic the basics of trumpet into something um, of what I thought was a whole lot more interesting. It's also true of it's also true of um, uh, music in general, right? No one goes if you want to pay to go listen to good music. You're not going to beginning band concert. <laughs> I'm just saying, who's at who's at the beginning concerts? Parents, grandparents, family, right? You're not paying to go to those. You're paying to go see the New York Philharmonic or the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. You're paying to go see good music. Church infantile Christianity is just as unimpressive. The world needs the real thing. Amen. We are called to discipleship, to spiritual maturity. We're called to move back past the basic repetitive tropes of beginning Christianity and onwards towards the big show. Let me ask you three questions this morning at the end of my first point. And while these questions aren't meant to be some kind of absolute test of where you're at in faith, maybe they could be a barometer of sorts of how you've grown this past year. If you consider yourself this morning here a follower of Christ, let me ask you these, these questions. Number one, how have you grown in your faith? or in your understanding of Jesus this past year. Just think to yourself. You don't, don't need to, to um, write those down maybe or anything, but how this past year have you grown? Would you say that you've grown? Number two, how has your family grown in their faiths this past year? How have you helped your family or friend group grow? Number three, kind of to that point as well, how has your community of friends grown in their faiths, the community around you, um, whatever that community may be. Again, maybe it's your small group community. Maybe it's your extended family. Maybe it's your neighbors. How has your community grown, or have they? With God's help, if depending on the answer to those questions, with God's help this next year, what could I do to better impact those three circles of people around me? Of course, myself, how can I grow in my knowledge and understanding of the word and of faith? Number two, how can I help my family grow? And maybe it's just you, maybe, um, but, but maybe there's one person then that you could dial a really close friend that you would consider like family and you could, they could be like family for you. 
Discipleship church is our calling. Amen. Number two, number two, my second point this morning, discipleship secures Jesus as my foundation. Discipleship is necessary, church, because when, when challenges come, when faith, um, when faith is challenged, um, weak faith won't last, right? Weak faith won't last. We can go back to the parable of the, of the sower, right? And, and make connections there to the, to the, to the seed that was thrown and, 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 and no, no roots were grown. And as soon as the storm comes, right, that's pulled up and pulled away. Weak faith won't last. Pew Research did a survey of those that left the Christian church and, and 83% responded that they were at best nominal Christians before. At best, nominal Christians. Roots of faith were shallow or completely non-existent. And so I believe we see discipleship as necessary at any cost because um, with the Great Commission as our marching orders as believers, and we know know that, that that's our why, that's our purpose, right? With the call of God, um, to share his love with our community, with our family, we have a purpose that cannot be denied when those challenges of life come. Let's not be blind this morning. It's becoming more and more difficult to live out our lives of faith in Western culture, right? We all know that. The question really becomes, how much then am I willing to lose in following the call to be and make disciples? Can I be obedient to that call to share the gospel in my workplace or in my school, in an online community? Can I be faithful to that call? What if, what if my job, though, is on the line? What if my, what if my status, my social status is on the line? What if, what if material possessions are on the line? Has my faith transformed um, my life to the degree that I'd give all that up to be obedient to the call of Christ? Um, can I share something this morning, um, really, really personal to me, and um, I'm going to try to not um, embarrass my son. Um, uh, he immediately just smacked his face, thinking, oh no, what is dad going to say? I actually hadn't planned on this, but I thought about this morning, and I just hoped it'd be, um, I could not have been more proud of my son um, this past year at Finney. Um, the school was put to get not into the details, was put in the spotlight for some things and they, as they decided to um, really state the purpose in, um, in being a school founded on the Word of God. I'll just put it like that for now. And um, they got some, some backlash for that. And um, it started to affect students in the way sports teams and things were um, – Affected and other schools, of course, found out, and it was in the news. And it was um, there was a particular school, and I won't say who that that they played, and things got pretty um, heated. The other team was hurling um, insults at our team and and um, calling individual players out by number, and just just got really, really, um, really unprofessional. And um, I get it; things get competitive, right? But but, but it got it went too far, and. I could not have been more proud of my son that day. Um, and the rest of the team, when I saw how they responded to that, they didn't let, it rile, they didn't let that rile them up. They played uh, with, with tons of sportsmanship, and they, they 
maintain their witness for Christ in what was an incredibly volatile situation. It could have gone bad. They could have reacted out of emotion. They could have responded uh, with anger at 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 the lies that were being yelled, but they didn't. And I told my son, and I had an opportunity to share with some of the parents of the other team, I was more proud of that team this year than I was last year when they won sectionals. I was. Because they, 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 they figured it out. They got something that winning a sectional title can't get you. And um, so just a personal, so there you go, son. Proud of you. <laughs> Listen, these, these pressures, these questions, though, these are big questions. And, and I, I, to strip everything away from our world, and, and this is what we're left with. Our culture seems to be hurtling away from its Christian foundations and onward towards blatant secularism. And so where will faithful followers of Christ be left in this mix? So-called mainline Christian churches and universities, organizations are abandoning historic Christian doctrine that the culture no longer deems tolerable like the virgin birth of Christ, certainly the biblical understanding of sin and even hell, these doctrines are no longer comfortable for our culture, and so they've thrown them out. Christian um, organizations. So what if I'm asked then to betray um, the truth of my faith and affirm, for example, sexual immorality or other sin, other sin at my school or job? Am I content in Christ if I lose those things? What if I face cancel culture for the other uh, other um, Christian um, doctrines, such as Jesus as the exclusive way to the Father. They don't like that one either. <laughs> Author and pastor Francis Chan spoke a handful of years a sermon called The Cost of Discipleship. And admittedly, a lot of the themes this morning come from that message. And um, he makes an incredibly interesting statement um, when he compares the relativism of biblical, uh, the Roman Empire at that time, and the persecution Christians faced there, and compares that world to the increasing secularism of Western culture today. Let me, let me explain. You see, Rome was fine. They were fine with uh, these fringe groups, um, um, even this fringe group of so-called Christ, uh, the way, as they were called, right? They were called the way. Um, they were used to different tribes and nations having their own gods and cultures worshiping at their own um, temples and all that. They were used to all that. They were comfortable with a relativistic religious ethos, right? Everyone has their own god, and as long as everyone stays in their lane, right, we're good. That, that was kind of Rome's opinion of all these tribes and nations. And that's true of the West today, right? Think about it. Think about it. Talk, talk, about, um, talk about Buddha or, or someone um, or different religious expression like meditation or finding your inner self or inner spirituality, and you'll actually be, be cheered on by the culture um, as just another brave soul searching for religious fulfillment, right? They'll cheer that on for the most part. The rub for the Romans, though, was that this ragtag group of um, followers of Christ dared to promote their God as superior to all others. That was the rub for Rome. And that's, and that's where it went too far. And the persecution of early Christians was severe. It's the same in the West today. Our culture doesn't take issue with the fact that Christians are quote-unquote religious. They're fine with the religion. What they increasingly have a problem with is just as the relativists did in Rome, 
that is that foundational to the Christian understanding of Jesus was his claim to not only be God, but to be above all other gods. With religious relativism replacing Judeo-Christian values in the West, this is now a huge problem here. The culture says, by all means, have your religion, but understand all religious pursuits are equal in value. Church, we know that is in direct contradiction to Christ. It should be no surprise then that tyrannical governments have always suppressed throughout history, have always suppressed Christian communities. Believers have always refused to give earthly governmental systems the same level of authority as Christ. We see throughout Scripture how Jesus claimed that authority over governments. In Jesus' own interaction with Pilate, before he would eventually be crucified, Pilate, frustrated with Jesus' refusal to answer a question in John 19, says this. He said this to Jesus, Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Verse 11, Jesus responded, Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus is supreme over governments. These ideas, church, force the question of what is most foundational for me. Create a mental picture with me. Jesus on one side of a scale and anything else that's important to me on the other. As elementary as this, this little practice may seem, bear with me for a minute. Maybe it's, maybe it's my family on the other side. What if, I love my fam- what if the love for my family is actually keeping me from doing what God has asked me to do? Now let me explain here a little bit. This is a common scenario for those who, who leave other faith traditions um, and walk into a relationship with Christ. I can't tell you the number of, of, of people I've talked with over the, over the years that left some tradition, whatever that may have been, and pursued relationship with Christ, and their family actually rejected them for it. I'll never forget talking with a missionary in Costa Rica, and she was, she was probably in her 40s at the time, so she wasn't you know, from a, um, a previous generation. Um, but she had grown up Catholic and um, had, had, been, had come into a radical um, relationship with Jesus, and her and her husband were, uh, then were led to, to start a uh, church there in Costa Rica. And because it wasn't Catholic, her parents completely, um, completely rejected her, kicked her out of the home, told her to never come back. Um, pursuing Christ sometimes um, may mean um, putting aside even things like family. I think of uh, missionaries a lot going to difficult places around the world, um, one of our missionaries that were um, pastor mentioned that um, will be sharing is from the Middle East, and um, often, often parents um, and families are really, as you can un- understand, because we love our families, um, don't want those types of things um, for our families, and so often um, there's almost a sense of pulling away from some of that in order to pursue Christ. It's difficult, difficult conversations. In one of the more difficult sections of Scripture, which Bible scholars later titled The Cost of Discipleship, Luke writes in chapters 14, um, 25 through 26, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus teaching there that we should hate our family? Of course not. 
um, th- th- this can't mean what it sounds like it means. He follows this verse up, though, with an explanation. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Have you and I, church, have you and I secured Jesus as the foundation of everything that we are and that we give up whatever is necessary to take up our cross and live our lives in obedience to Christ? Those are tough, tough questions, even though if that means difficult things like this pastor's wife in Costa Rica, like the missionary uh, feeling a call to a difficult place. Number three, in closing this morning, sanctification occurs through discipleship. Sanctification occurs through discipleship. Let me explain. If, if discipleship is our goal, if spiritual maturity, if growth is our goal, and Jesus is secured as my foundation, sanctification then is, is our goal. It's what helps us get there. We understand sanctification as this process of becoming more like Christ. It's this ongoing work in the life of the believer, right? And, and traditionally, we've seen there are different phases of sanctification, different steps. When you and I accept Christ as Lord and Savior, that's kind of this initial um, phase of sanctification, right? I've surrendered my own way. I've laid down my life and will, put aside my rights in, in order to be obedient to Christ. It's this act of separation from sin and dedication to God. What's, what's interesting about this process is, is um, that this separation from sin, it produces um, a, a spiritual tension of sorts that we might not have expected. Um, pastor and author Dr. Jim Klubnick explains this and he said, when he said this on, on sanctification. He said the process of sanctification or spiritual maturity is marked by conflict, spiritual warfare. Because our new life in Christ is now on a collision course with the world, is opposed by Satan, and fought by the sinful nature within us, right? It is the presence of the Holy Spirit that produces the tension or conflict in our life. The presence of the Holy Spirit that produces the conflict. This conflict in the life of believer, rather than being proof of sanctification's absence, he says is actually evidence of its work. So in the ongoing work of sanctification in my life, I can and should expect difficulties. We've talked more and more about developing a theology of suffering. And, and that is an understanding of why you and I face difficult things I think, I believe this is one of the more crucial things for you and, and, and myself in um, pursuing spiritual maturity, but especially for you if you would call yourself new to faith or you're still figuring this thing out. I'm not sure where you might say you are this morning on the journey of faith. This is so, so important. Why does this matter for you if you're new? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to young adults here this morning, teens here. This is for you also as you're developing what faith is going to be like in your own life, as, as you're developing what your life is going to look like foundational to Christ. I believe facing hard times is the number one reason people leave faith in the West. I specifically say the West because believers actually in the rest of the world see suffering as normative. It's a normal part of life for them. So that's the reason for the designation of the West. Um, deconstruction, this word deconstruction, it's our modern word for it. 
this phenomena of leaving the faith. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there's an entire online community of people um, that has been created recently to um, um, basically cheer on people leaving the faith. Whole websites and social media pages dedicated just to people sharing their experiences of leaving relationship with Christ. It's heartbreaking. One of the things as you listen to these gut-wrenching stories of people who have walked away is that they seemed unprepared for hard things. They seemed unprepared for difficulty. There's trauma or there's abuse, the loss of a close friend or family member, terminal disease or mental illness. I could go on and on. These are extremely difficult, difficult things. I don't want to sugarcoat at all. So many times people that have deconstructed, though, if you listen carefully to these stories, they've experienced these unimaginable circumstances and haven't been able to rectify their suffering with their faith. Is it possible, then, that some who've left were sold an incorrect version of what faith is really about? Is it possible that they were told that they would lead a good life without evil, without pain, without suffering. And if that's the case, is it possible then that they rejected, they've rejected actually an incorrect version of, of faith? That the Jesus they followed wasn't the real Jesus of the Bible? That didn't ask them to hate their family in the pursuit of, of taking up their cross? I think that's the case. I think many have rejected a false version of what faith was and what's... And so developing the proper theology of suffering, of why we, we go through difficult things, is so it's a crucial part of, of, of discipleship in the life of every believer. And sanctification, then, is the goal which produces that result. Um, I want to I close this morning. I, mean, I don't know if you've been watching this show, um, The Chosen. Um, and I, I feel like I've talked about it the last few times I've spoken with you. Um, let me just disclaimer this morning a little bit. Uh, the, the show, The Chosen, is not meant to be the Bible, okay? They follow um, Scripture very carefully and closely. So, But like every show, right, we have to use discernment. We all know that. Um, but I, there is what I believe is one of the most powerful scenes that I've seen yet in the show. Let me give a little bit of backstory for you as we close this morning. In the series, um, James, little James, is depicted by an actor. His name was Jordan Walker Ross. This is the actor's name. And uh, in real life, he has severe scoliosis and cerebral palsy. Um, his condition causes a noticeable limp and has actually made him shorter than the average male. Um, and so in The Chosen, he's depicting, as I say, little James. Um, and instead of trying to hide this limp, you know, they do that sometimes in shows. They'll try to hide things, or if women get pregnant in a show, they're always standing behind a thing like this, you know, like they'd hide their belly. Instead of trying to hide um, this, they decided to speak to this issue of, uh, of suffering and address this head on. And I loved, loved this interaction between Jesus and James. Will you take a look? Do you trust Jesus with your pain? Do you trust Jesus with your suffering? Do you trust his plan for what that might be? I don't know. Um, I, I know. I do know what many of you are going through currently, what you've recently faced because we've been praying for you, for your families, the things that you're going through. And I can't, I can't stand here and say, I know how it feels. Um, I'm not walking your, your path. Um, I hope 
that you have, um, that you hope, that you know the hope of Christ in your pain and what that gives us. We've mentioned it recently, Pastor mentioned it, I love it. We don't hope as a believer and, and hope in that it's just wishful thinking. Hope for the believer is 100% confidence that God will do what he said he's going to do. Amen? And so I can take the things that I'm going through confident of what Jesus will do. As Jesus told James at the end, one day you will be healed. And that's the, that's the hope that we have in heaven that no other belief system, that no other religion gives is the hope after this life. Jesus has never left you. And in spite of what you're going through, never will. That is our hope. And it's totally in him. Um, what I believe are some of the most comforting words from Scripture, Second Corinthians 4, along this line, says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. These bodies, they're wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, that's our pain, that's our suffering, that's the things we go through. But what on what is unseen, church, that's heaven. Since what we have what we've seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Church, I want to encourage you today to fix our eyes on what is unseen, because there we find our hope. We're gonna close this morning in a perfect way.